Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Giuliani, author of Philadelphia's Germans. Richard Giuliani is the author of Philadelphia's Germans, From Colonial Settlers to Enemy Aliens. Uh, why did you write this book? Good question. Um, a complex answer. Uh, it, it's, it comes on several different levels, frankly. One is an experience that I had many years ago at a meeting uh, of an uh, organization in the city of Philadelphia that was developing a research center for the study of immigration. And we had a very distinguished board of prominent Philadelphians, prominent and powerful, influential Philadelphians. And one was a German-American who was the head of one of the nation's great chemical pharmaceutical companies. And I looked up a great deal to this man uh, who can remain named. It's not important. But he said at one night at one of our board meetings, he casually mentioned that German-Americans were treated very, very badly during the First World War. And I'd never heard something like this before. And I kind of leaned forward and I looked toward him, at him, and there was a sadness that came over him. And it really astonished me because uh, he was a very impressive personality, a very a strong presence. And I saw a man almost diminished by this sad memory. And I thought, wow, there's something here that I really would like someday to look back into more deeply. The second thing that uh, happened to me was something that I read of a more academic nature uh, of remark by Benjamin Franklin, who is, of course, greatly exalted in Philadelphia, almost saintly in Philadelphia, of a famous remark that uh, appeared in a, a well-known book on uh, the history of discrimination, prejudice in America, John Hyam's Strangers in the Land, quoted Benjamin Franklin as saying at a certain early point that uh, we must anglicize these Palatine Boers, referring to the Germans that were flooding into the Pennsylvania colony. We must anglicize these Palatine Boers or they will surely Germanicize us. And it was cited as probably the first public expression of prejudice in early American history. And uh, again, I had a, a, a kind of surprised reaction to it and thought, Wow, Germans, I would have never thought it. And then as my own formation as an academic and a scholar uh, continued to unfold, I began to read other writers that were putting a broader context in place for me. Uh, a, a local historian, Edwin Wolf, who has long go passed from the scene, who in writing the concluding epilogue to Russell Wigley's Philadelphia 300-year history said, there is no single history of Philadelphia. There are as many different histories of Philadelphia as there are different 
peoples of Philadelphia. And I, as I read that, I was at the time preoccupied with research on Italian-Americans, but it broadened my perspective to read this and to think that each of the immigrant, ethnic, and racial groups that came into Philadelphia uh, deserves its own history, and we need each of these histories in order to have a comprehensive and a complete uh, view of the history of Philadelphia, which was something that was of great interest to me. Um, and I began to uh, think at a much later date, as I immersed myself in the Italian-American experience, I began to uh, feel uncomfortably that not enough had been written in recent years about German-Americans. And uh, if you know the history of Philadelphia, you come to realize that you really don't have a history of Philadelphia without the presence of Germans because they were a huge group and probably more than any other immigrant group, they had a more developed institutional presence in Philadelphia, more than any other group. Uh, and it was, they had their own banks, they had their own hospital, Lankanoil Hospital today was the German hospital at one time. They had their own uh, churches, they had their own synagogues for German Jews. Uh, they had uh, their own insurance companies, they had a, a, a full complement of institutions that organized their community. And if you look around for it at uh, a more recent date, you will see some social clubs that still exist. And you will see some uh, church congregations uh, that have German roots. But the great presence of Germans in Philadelphia uh, has all but been obliterated, almost totally obliterated. And yet we still have Germantown and we say, Germantown, that's interesting. What was that all about? And as you travel north of Philadelphia and get into the Bucks County suburbs, for example, on the north side of the city and look at the names of proprietors of, of commercial establishments as you drive across the local roads, Boy, you see a lot of German names and you begin to realize this was German turf once upon a time. So it drew me into a much greater preoccupation with the German experience in America than I had ever had before. And, and I also became increasingly aware of the tragedy of the German-American experience because here they were almost co-founders with William Penn of the Pennsylvania colony. Uh, William Penn arrives 1680, the Germans are here 1681, Francis Daniel Pastorius. Uh, there's uh, an early rivalry between German settlers and Anglo settlers. And there's a struggle that uh, unfolds. As I began to trace it, to try, to try, to try to track it down through local newspapers uh, that are now easily accessible at home, digitally available to us, um, I began to see a great deal of reference to the German presence and uh, also developed a sense of a tension between Germans and the dominant Anglo-Americans in Philadelphia. Each ethnic group, each immigrant ethnic group, as it settles in a large metropolitan area like Philadelphia, has its own way of making an adjustment to its new locality, its new area. 
uh, I've come to realize that to study a, an ethnic group, whether it's the Italians, the Poles, the Irish, uh, the Germans, there are three recurrent issues that uh, attracted my attention. One was coming to America, the study of immigration. The second was becoming American or the assimilation into America that each of these groups experiences. And the third was being of that origin at a much more recent date. So I began to focus my work on coming, becoming, and being. Coming to America, becoming American, and being an American of a certain ethnic origin. Now, in the case of the Germans, the Germans had a, I think for the most part, and you can't easily generalize about this because each ethnic group does it a little differently. And even within each ethnic group, you're going to find a lot of variation. Some will go one way in that population, others will go another way, and others will yet find uh, an even other direction to go. But in the case of the Germans, I, for a long, long time, there was this great sense that we can become American while we remain very much German. They were very proud of their background. Uh, they were very uh, pleased with it. They were very satisfied with it. And they lived with the belief that becoming American did not mean that they would have to erase all the Germanness from their daily lives. So in the, the, the book that we're here to talk about today, uh, I try to look at their daily life. I try to look at their institutions. I try to look at them at work, at play, in the, in the polling place, on the streets. I try to look at them in a variety of different settings and see this, try to trace this tension between being German and becoming American which is at, at its core, I think, what this book is all about, uh, being German and becoming American. Uh, and of course, it ends with a certain measure of tragedy, because when the war breaks out, the Germans, the First World War, the Great War, uh, the Germans are really on the spot, because there is a period of um, a self-proclaimed neutrality on the part of the United States, uh, in which uh, officially, we have not made any commitment to the allies, the demo so-called democratic allies, or the, uh, uh, Germany and the uh, uh, Triple Alliance powers. Um, and the United States under President Wilson declares itself to be neutral. But it really isn't neutral because all during these years, the war begins, of course, in August of 1914. The United States is not going to enter the war until the spring of 1917. And we're not going to commit many troops uh, to, to the combat scene in Europe until the following year. Uh, the big buildup occurs in June of 1918. And there's only a relatively short period of time in which American troops are going to find themselves in combat in the First World War uh, from June of 1918 till the end of the war in November of 1918. But during that period from 1914, when what is first called the European War breaks out until we enter the war, till we commit ourselves in the war in the spring of 1917, we're supposedly uh, uh, following a policy of neutrality 
But there is a strong, strong sentiment that favors England and France at this time. And there's a great deal of suspicion about what Germans are up to. And the Germans are, of course, very much hoping that we will not commit ourselves to uh, the Allies, but will stay out of the war or perhaps even give greater support to, to Germany. It's a, but it becomes a very, very difficult time for German Americans. Now, the irony in all of this is in the period of the great migration from Europe in which millions of people migrated from European countries to Europe through most of the 19th century into the early 20th century, the greatest single source of the peopling of America, the peopling of the United States was Germany. Rich, uh, I wanted to ask you, I want yes, to go, go back ahead. a little bit and uh, ask you about something really important, uh, beer. Uh, it does seem to play a significant role both in, in the German-American lives, but also seem to have a significant political uh, role in the United States in the late 1800s. Can you talk about beer and the temperance movement and the German culture? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, there is, of course, um, the Germans are innovators to popular culture. Uh, the Germans are going to do things uh, at, at work, but especially at play, especially, for example, in the, the manner in which they observe uh, Sundays uh, differently than older Americans, earlier Americans are going to do. And one of the things that the Germans liked to do was to have uh, rather extravagant public celebrations in the parks. Uh, and beer was a very much a central part of that. Now, this made uh, other Americans, uh, more powerful Americans, and uh, I'm speaking about Americans in terms of specific ethnic groups, a little bit nervous because uh, Philadelphia, I remember saying Philadelphia described once as an old gray Quaker lady. Well, it wasn't entirely Quaker. It was also Presbyterian and Episcopalian and to some extent Catholic, of course. Uh, but the, the extravagant celebrations in which uh, the, the celebration uh, accompanied by massive amounts of beer and sauerkraut become a very important part of the Sunday afternoon for German families. Music, dance, beer, uh, and, and all of that, uh, very important in German life. Uh, and of course, for Germans, there's nothing wrong with that. But in a rather puritanical culture, uh, there are grave misgivings about the role of demon rum and beer is a part of demon rum. Uh, and there's a great deal of tension between um, uh, Germans and the other major groups uh, st struggling for control of Philadelphia politics and Philadelphia daily life. Uh, and beer, the, the drinking of beer, the consumption of beer is very much at, the, at the, the, the center of this. And of course, the Germans are not only drinkers of beer, but they're producers of beer because we have had uh, we have a series of uh, 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 beer breweries in Philadelphia, some of which still remain to this day. Uh, that are very important uh, parts of the economics uh, setup of, of uh, the German experience, the German adjustment to Philadelphia. It was one of the prosperous. And, and the, the corner bar is a very uh, commonplace kind of uh, a gathering place for uh, Germans. Uh, and it's a place of uh, innocent gathering. It's, it's not it's not a place uh, 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 in which people have to uh, be fearful. People have to be uh, approached with trepidation. But it's a place where families go. It's a place where 
um, men for the most part, but families can be found. And uh, uh, the Germans have no problem with uh, the role of beer and other forms of alcohols for that matter, but especially beer. Uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, it, it's a very conspicuous part of their everyday uh, life in, in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the United States. Uh, of course, our great breweries across the country all still bear German names. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. And the, the, I think you've got something else in mind, maybe. But uh, go ahead, Phil. Now, the, the Germans are very prolific with a lot of their uh, social organizations. They have singing groups, a rifle club. Uh, can you talk about uh, that aspect of their culture? Well, uh, it, 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 I don't know if they're that much different from other groups in that respect, but it, it's clear that their rifle clubs in particular were very important. They were coming from a background in Germany in which hunting was very, very important, and hunting was an opportunity that brought men together for uh, other purposes, uh, uh, secondary purposes uh, on the surface. Uh, the, the, the hunting clubs were... Uh, to, to go into the forests in Germany. But in the United States, they became, they became more uh, sporting clubs for marksmen, uh, but also to serve those secondary purposes, the uh, gathering uh, and the socializing. Uh, and they become, and, and again, they remain to this day in, some, in many American cities, there still are the hunting clubs uh, with a, a, a German uh, character attached to them uh, that uh, marks their origins and marks their identity very clearly. Well, we were talking a little bit earlier about beer, and uh, one of the things you say in the book was that uh, with German immigrants now pouring in uh, while seeking to take their place in American society, they were not eager to abandon their traditional culture and the consumption of beer and other spirits had a role in their lives that they were not willing to willing to pay as part of their price of becoming Americans. So uh, as they, they came into conflict with the, the temperance movement, uh, how, how did this play out politically? Well, it largely plays out in terms of what do we do on Sundays? Uh, and the temperance movement felt that Sundays should be restricted to uh, long participations in uh, church services, religious services, and very, very somber, sober and somber uh, activities throughout the day. Uh, the Germans had a very contrasting uh, uh, alternative. Uh, as far as they were concerned, uh, they went to the parks and they celebrated and they wanted the beer to flow on Sunday afternoons. And the temperance movement, which was a very uh, highly organized and very powerful presence in Philadelphia through uh, much of the middle years, the middle decades and late uh, years of the 19th century, uh, really found this very, very threatening to the social order and the safety of Philadelphia. And there is this uh, long tension that plays out during those years and expresses itself in political campaigns, expresses itself in the newspapers, uh, expresses itself in the courts uh, because there are legal suits that uh, get, find their way to court actions. Uh, and it, 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 it is a very difficult 
very difficult moment for the Germans. It's a very difficult moment for the other peoples as well, because they see the sacredness of Sunday being eroded by these boisterous Germans uh, who uh, want to frolic. Uh, and and uh, it, it's, it's, it's not a happy time for either, either group. But um, I think uh, the, the, the other groups are also looking at the modernization and secularization of society. Uh, and the Germans are bringing what they see as an unwholesome presence. The Germans, on their part, are convinced they are coming from a highly superior cultural background. And it's kind of interesting to see on uh, German, Germans when they celebrate holidays and when they celebrate, uh, when they decide to commemorate the past, the historical past, uh, and they start to have celebrations in honor of Frederick Schiller and uh, great uh, uh, Goethe and uh, great cultural figures, uh, not, not military figures, not political figures as much as uh, great cultural figures, composers, uh, dramatic, uh, dramatists, uh, uh, scholars, uh, and uh, they have a great conviction, and this is also something that's going to boil over as we approach the end of the 19th century and the tensions of the early 20th century. The Germans are convinced themselves that society is collapsing, but the solution, the salvation, is German culture. Uh, and they have a, a strong belief, and they can make a good argument that they have a very rich and powerful culture that may be what the rest of the world needs to hold modernity together at a time when we seem to be moving. It's kind of parallel in a sense to what many people feel like today as they look around at popular culture and they can't believe some of the things they see and they say, this is all going in a profane direction. It's all going in a, in a very unfavorable direction. There was something very similar that was happening in the late 19th century. And the, the, the Germans were sure that their culture was the answer uh, to that, uh, that kind of crisis, that kind of cultural crisis that America was facing. Um, and, and that's part of the background for the tensions between the, the different groups. Now, at, at, in the late 1800s, uh, during this period that we're talking about, uh, uh, it was a time when Germany becomes unified. Uh, before the 1870s, it was made up of a lot of little little states, and uh, then it becomes uh, a unified German empire. How did this sense of cultural superiority uh, paralleling this period of, of political unification uh, affect German-Americans? Well, they were very proud of what Bismarck had accomplished, and uh, Germany is a very, uh, even though Germany, along with Italy, were the two uh, uh, latest, rather relatively late modern nations to form. But when they formed, when Germany formed, I should say, uh, it formed as a very powerful and uh, very formidable uh, nation. Uh, and uh, what Bismarck accomplished uh, was something that uh, Germans in distant places in immigrant colonies overseas were very proud of. Uh, and uh, Bismarck was not just a political unifier, but he was, a, of course, a social reformer and introduced uh, a social contract with the, 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 the citizenry, which is still admired today, 
uh, introducing uh, medical, uh, medical, public medical care and things of this sort, uh, social security type programs that uh, benefited the population uh, in a way that other countries lagged far behind. Uh, and whether you were part of this or not, and the Germans who had settled in the United States were not any longer a part of it, they were very proud of what their nation had accomplished. Uh, and uh, they were celebrating here uh, by, their by the persistence, their preference for the persistence of German culture. They were celebrating Bismarck's accomplishments in a distant land that they had, they had themselves left. Uh, and, and so we have it. Now, one of the terms that, that you talk about in your book is hyphenated Americans, and sometimes it's just reduced to the hyphen. Uh, right. what, what did that mean to German Americans? <clears throat> well, the, the, the concept of the hyphenated American became a politically very volatile concept. Hyphen became almost a curse word in America. Uh, you can find again and again references in public addresses, in uh, newspaper articles, in political campaigns, uh, references to the hyphen. And the hyphen comes to be understood as an alien. Uh, and when uh, we begin to approach war, we begin to talk in terms of enemy aliens. Uh, once the United States enters the war, those residents of America, citizens and non-citizens, whose origins are part of the other side of the uh, political and military uh, fracas that's going on, on in, in Europe, uh, they are enemy aliens. And we are a little bit nervous about their allegiance. Uh, I started to say a little bit earlier that the Germans had contributed more to the population of the United States from a demographic point of view. We are more a German nation than anything else. More immigrants came from Germany than any other uh, origin in Amer all of American history, the largest migration from a foreign source to the United States is Germany. The irony is that when we go to war in the First World War, probably the largest single component of the U.S. Army are Americans of German descent. And yet at home, there is this nervous campaign about whether Germans will be loyal or not. And of course, in Philadelphia, you have the headquarters of the German-American Alliance under Hexamer, Charles Hexamer, a very well-known Philadelphian, that is making people across the country very, very nervous because they're being accused of supporting the German interest even after the war has begun. Hexamer repeatedly uh, insists and other German-American leaders that their loyalty is to the United States first. As soon as the war breaks out, they make it very, very clear that their loyalty is to the United States, not to Germany any longer. Uh, and yet uh, that those claims are looked at with suspicion uh, and it reaches congressional investigation uh, and it reaches a very, very difficult time, not only for the German-American alliance in Philadelphia and other places across the country, but German-Americans across the country, German-Americans of all sorts, uh, even though uh, they have this great rep representation in the American population and in the U.S. armed forces at this time. Uh, but it's a very, very difficult time to be a, a, a German-American. And this, of course, is what I was alluding to in my opening remarks when I spoke of that gentleman 
who had talked about how difficult it was to be a German-American and how um, badly German-Americans were treated. There was one known lynching out in the Midwest of a German-American, but there were numerous episodes of brutality against German-American uh, citizens uh, by uh, vigilante gangs uh, who decided to take the law into their own hands uh, and were punishing uh, German-American institutions. This is this ludicrous period in American history when everything that smacks of Germany has to be cleansed, okay? The city of Pittsburgh, uh, we add an H to the spelling of Pittsburgh to make it, it should be pronounced Pittsburgh because it becomes a British, a city of British origins uh, with the new spelling with the H attached to it as we know it to today. But it's the kind of thing that John Hyam, whom I mentioned earlier in Stranger Than the Land, uh, uh, was very good at describing. Uh, it's the time in which the uh, Frankfurter became the hot dog uh, and the sauerkraut became victory cabbage and things of that sort. Uh, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. We look back on it now laugh at it, except that uh, we've seen something very similar to it in recent years. Uh, but in German, in, uh, in the early 20th century, it was across the board. Once the war started, uh, there were numerous, numerous instances of this uh, cleansing impulse in which everything that smacked of Germany and German culture had to be uh, reconstructed with a more anglicized, uh, it, it's the triumph of, of, of uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, imperative. Uh, we have to anglicize these Palatine Boers. Uh, it, it's the cleaning up of America uh, at this time. But this is, uh, this is a period in which if one was an American of German origin, you have to look over your shoulder and say, what comes next? And what risks are there in this for me? Uh, and as I uh, said, uh, perhaps uh, over and over again in the book, uh, German institutions become anglicized. Uh, insurance companies that are known as German-American life become liberty life. Uh, the uh, German hospital becomes Lankenau Hospital in Philadelphia, uh, it, uh, celebrating a German-American founder, but uh, obscuring its German roots at the same time. And everything that is too blatantly associated with Germany has to be erased, has to be modified, has to be cleaned in some way uh, so that other Americans could be more comfortable with this uh, once upon a time German presence that is no longer quite so German uh, anymore. Uh, and it's a difficult time. It's a very difficult time. And, and what's disturbing about it, I think, especially as you read it, is uh, are we seeing, you can ask yourself inevitably uh, the question, are we seeing something very similar to it again uh, today uh, with groups that uh, are more recently arrived and on, part, on the part of the American scene and make us a little nervous at times? And have we learned anything from that past history or are we going to repeat the same errors, the same mistakes by being too nervous about a foreign presence in our midst. Uh, and I think that's the, the kind of hidden message that's in the book. Uh, one of the examples that you offer about how far people are willing to go to uh, 
to do some of the things you were mentioning was uh, in 1915, you say that the Pennsylvania legislature enacted a bill that prohibited dog ownership among uh, foreign born persons. And, and right. you, you quote a Philadelphia newspaper yeah. saying that if we have to, if we are to have trouble with Germany, it will be a great relief to feel that no alien dachshund may be conveying secret dispatches <laughs> down the Delaware. Oh, why prohibit yeah. dog ownership? I had to include that. Uh, I can't, I can't explain for you the thinking, the inter interior mental state of the legislators and their supporters uh, who promoted, uh, advocated, and secured that kind of legislation. But they were very troubled about aliens uh, uh, owning dogs. They were very troubled about aliens having weapons. Uh, there were uh, similar laws passed about aliens uh, owning uh, we weapons, rifles, which the aliens used for hunting. Again, they came from rural cultures in which hunting was a, a very commonplace source of food for them. Uh, as Pennsylvania hunters still do today. They go into the forest and shoot deer during hunting season. Uh, but at that particular point, uh, some people were very nervous about allowing aliens to walk around with weapons in their midst. Uh, and, uh, and it applied even to this ludicrous thing uh, of allowing aliens to have dogs. And they were actually exterminating dogs. They were rounding up dogs that had been owned by alien families and killing them. Uh, the state agents were killing them. Uh, and and it, I included it because I thought it was part of a ludicrous moment in which the fears of nervous Americans exceeded all bounds of reasonableness, of, of rationality. Uh, somehow an alien owning a dog was a threat to the security of the nation when other Americans uh, could safely own dogs that were nothing more than pets and, com and animal companions, but not uh, not a serious uh, dis uh, threat to the to disrupt the nation's security and, and stability. Uh, you, also, you also talk about Abel Palmer and uh, the effort to uh, seize uh, enemy alien property, including yeah. prominent breweries and businesses. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about him. Well, A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, was a Swarthmore graduate, Quaker himself, uh, was a pretty decent man in many respects, uh, but was given the responsibility uh, eventually as attorney general of securing the safety and social order of America. Uh, but what we see him earlier as the, the custodian of alien property, a really ominous guy, uh, title, I think, the custodian of alien property. When the war break, when the United States enters the war, there is a question of what do we do with German-owned property in the United States? We have uh, an armada of ships that are owned by German corporations. We have chemical companies. We have the breweries. We have uh, heavy manufacturers that are owned by German families that have very uh, explicit, these are not hidden operations. Uh, they may have headquarters in New York and Berlin. Uh, so we begin to confiscate their property for what is originally, uh, initially said, for the duration of the war. It's being held until the war ends. Uh, it eventually begins to be auctioned off uh, and uh, the, the German families that owned these, these properties and these commercial establishments lost all legal rights to them. 
Uh, and, it, and, and again, it's a very sad dimension to the, the experience of German families in America uh, during the, this period. But there's an enormous amount of personal wealth and corporate wealth that is confiscated by the federal government and at the beginning held supposedly for the duration of the war, but with the, the development of events later. Uh, we begin to forget that this is being temporarily held and it, it eventually becomes uh, the property of the federal government uh, and it is disposed of by the federal government. Uh, and these families lost enormous amounts of, of money and there was a great bitterness because uh, in many cases, for instance, in the, in the case of the breweries, these families were thoroughly Americanized. They were German-American families. Uh, and they had uh, long been a part of the American scene. They had identified themselves as Americans of German descent, yes, but they saw themselves as uh, American firms. Uh, and they were having a very, very unfortunate time of it. And it's a bad, it's, it's, a, it's a very bad chapter in American history where our nervousness, our fears got the better of us. And it becomes a very controversial time. Uh, the people who uh, defended uh, the other side are dismissed as, as radicals and socialists and uh, are, are people that you uh, are demonized themselves. Uh, but I think they were in many cases upholding uh, the, the real democracy, if such a thing exists, in American life. Now, you say that uh, no one exploited the hyphenated American issue as much as uh, Theodore Roosevelt did. Uh, well, Theodore Roosevelt campaigned on it. He knew it, it resonated with Americans. Uh, and there is a, a, a major citizenship conference that occurs in Philadelphia where leaders come in 1915 from all over the country to discuss uh, the future of the immigrant, the future of assimilation, the future of Americanization. Uh, and... There are speakers who say that uh, these foreign-born people will become Americans in due time, and we will appreciate the gifts that they bring to America, and we can all just relax and bide our time, and they don't represent any serious threat. Roosevelt dismisses all of this because he knows uh, that uh, what resonates with a large part of the population is the uh, argument that we do have to fear these people, and they are a threat to the security of the United States. Uh, and he really, um, he, he talks about the boarding house of nations. He uses some very colorful phrases, uh, and he says that the United States should not become a boarding house of, of different nations. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that a, a populist uh, campaigner like Roosevelt was, was able to uh, uh, present to the American public and have a great deal, a great number of people who, who jump to his support and say, yeah, he's the man who's going to make America great again. Uh, he's, he's our man. He's our candidate. Uh, and Roosevelt becomes a very disruptive force at this particular point, uh, of course. Uh, but he's a very, of course, he's a very colorful, he's a very charismatic figure. Uh, he's uh, somebody that uh, it, it had a, a noble record as, in terms of his pursuit as a trust buster uh, and a re great reformer of, against corporate America uh, earlier in his political career. So he has, he has good credentials in American life, but somehow gets really 
obsessed with the, the, the foreign threat uh, and becomes, uh, unfortunately, I think his uh, reputation suffers a bit for the mistakes of his later life in this regard. Uh, but uh, uh, he, he, he does use it effectively. Now you mentioned that uh, before the war, German Americans were very proud of their culture. And uh, how, how did this experience of the way they were treated during the war affect their uh, relationship to their own culture? Well, I think they have to lie low uh, once the war begins. Uh, and uh, even after the war, uh, I, I remember when I was growing up and, and I grew up in the city of Camden across the river from here, uh, we had a German Lutheran church that was right next to the first public school that I attended when I was a wee tot. Uh, and uh, they had uh, ceremonies in German, and it was kind of a strange presence in the neighborhood. I don't think we knew what to make of it, but I think in a sense now, as I think back on it, it kind of captured uh, to a large extent the experience of many German Americans, much of the German American population. They had to play down uh, the, 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 German, uh, the German aspect of who they were and what they were. And of course, when the second world comes along, it reaffirms all those fears all over again. Uh, and it almost completely obliterates the German American presence. I think German Americans have done a very uh, noble kind of thing since the second world war, trying to uh, revitalize the presence of German American culture. Uh, I uh, look at it with great respect and, and, and great hope for the future that uh, we have gotten over this finally uh, and German Americans can celebrate uh, their holidays and celebrate German American heroes uh, in, from our earlier, uh, earlier political uh, stages uh, who contributed much to the formation of America as a nation. Uh, and uh, uh, German Americans don't have to have any, any feelings of, uh, uh, of hesitation about this kind of thing any, any longer. Uh, uh, we have the revivals of the parades and we have the revivals uh, of, of the, the, the picnics. And I think it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Now, you mentioned that in the book, uh, in different places, uh, the role of German newspapers, German language newspapers in, in the community. Can you talk about uh, German language newspapers in Philadelphia? Sure. There were uh, uh, quite a few. There were several, and they were very prominent. They were very important. Uh, a couple of them had national circulation. And again, it is uh, uh, symptomatic of the German presence in the community uh, because I don't think any other ethnic group had as many newspapers in a foreign tongue as the Germans did, or newspapers that were as successful. Uh, and uh, these, these organs also became very suspect uh, as a uh, presence when the, the First World War breaks out. Uh, and the Tageblatt uh, here in Philadelphia, which was a national newspaper, uh, goes to federal court and, and becomes, their editors are accused um, before we enter the war, they had published editorials in which they described the weapons of the German army, and they were accused of having betrayed America for having uh, simply descriptive articles 
uh, on the nature of the weapons that the German forces were using in the early stages of the war. And this got them into great hot water that ended up in federal courts where they were being uh, accused of, of violating sedition laws by publishing these articles. But they also, they also had suggested to young German Americans that maybe they did, if they did, if they were uncomfortable with serving in the war, uh, once the war, once the United States entered the war, that they could perhaps uh, declare themselves as being uh, objectors to the war uh, and uh, ask for uh, the license to avoid military service. And that didn't go over too well, of course, either. Uh, but they got into a great deal of hot water, uh, and it ends up in some celebrated legal actions in federal courts in Philadelphia uh, that bring down the germ for the for to a large extent bring down the German uh, publishing uh, empire uh, in 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 this area uh, and uh, you you it, when the war is over the German newspaper is not the presence that it once was uh, any longer. I do want to before we run out of time I do want to go back a little bit further in time and talk about the Revolution of 1848 and what impact that had both on German immigration as well as on the political ideas they brought with them. Right. Well, of course, the Revolution of 1848 was an attempt to install democratic and Republican forms of government in Europe. Uh, and before the, those movements succeeded, they failed. They failed in Germany. They failed in Hungary. They failed in several uh, countries. They failed in France. Uh, and there was this uh, reversion to earlier pre-democratic forms of government. But what it also meant is it dislodged a, a, a population of rebels who, for their own safety, had to flee their native countries. And uh, many of the 1848 participants in the German uh, political movement uh, in, in the 18, late 1840s in Germany uh, fled to the United States. Uh, many of them became early supporters of the new Republican Party, which was the liberal party of American politics in the mid-19th century. They were early supporters of Abraham Lincoln. Many of them uh, became early supporters of the Union cause and uh, flocked to the Union army. Uh, at times, and I've, I've mentioned this, of course, in the book, the uh, Civil War looks like a, a, a war of a German military force against the Confederacy, except that the, the, the Confederacy also had a, a rather formidable German presence as well, but not nearly as much as the Union did. But in the, the case of the Union Army, uh, you had uh, large units that were almost entirely uh, manned by German personnel, officers and lower ranks. Uh, uh, you have a, a very, very uh, large, widespread German presence in the Union Army during the, the Civil War, and a very uh, commendable presence. They're very, very uh, important at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example. They're very, very important in a number of critical battles during the Civil War. Uh, and uh, we owe a lot to those German volunteers. Uh, they, some of them were recruited in Philadelphia. You have German-American units being mobilized in Philadelphia and shipped off uh, to the battle lines of the American Civil War. Uh, it's a very important chapter in German-American history. Uh, 
Before World War I, how politically active were Germans? Were, were they running for office in Philadelphia? Oh, yes. The German-Americans were very, very active. And a large part of the book is devoted to uh, the German-American political presence. Uh, they, uh, the, the, the German names are, are very conspicuous in uh, Philadelphia history. In the 1870s, 80s, 90s, uh, you have uh, prominent members of the city councils. Uh, you have uh, prominent uh, department heads. Uh, the, the Germans are very important. And the, the, the major political parties, the, the Democrats and Republicans, uh, know that in order to succeed, they have to win over the German vote. So a large part of, of what I wrote deals with the campaigning by mainstream political figures, mainstream political figures campaigning in the German community. And uh, candidates who go in who attempt to speak German, some of them are of German origin themselves, and they, they restate their claims to their German origins and fumble around in, sometimes in, in uh, a, German that they, a German language that they have long forgotten. But in other cases, they're still quite fluent in German. And it's very important for that candidate to go into uh, particularly the voting districts in North Philadelphia, where there are large uh, congregations of German voters uh, the districts of North Philadelphia, and present themselves as an authentic German candidate. And there's a great struggle between the two parties in terms of whose candidate is more German. Uh, so the, and, and the German-Americans also, of course, organize political groups. The, the parties themselves have conspicuous uh, German-American elements on, on an organizational basis at the same time. Now, in the book, you, you rely on uh, Philadelphia newspapers and the, right. their view of, of the German community there. Why, why did you take that approach? It's a matter of available data. Uh, and uh, sitting at home during the pandemic, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not the same world of research where you can get up and go about to uh, uh, the archives that are available in a city like Philadelphia. But at, at home with the very uh, rich there's two major uh, digitalized newspaper sources. Uh, I'll speak of chronicling America as one. It's the Library of Congress, where you can go into newspapers from all over the country, put in a, a key term such as Germans, uh, and get hundreds of articles in which the word Germans occurs. Or you can compound it, put Germans in Philadelphia uh, in your search, uh, and get hundreds of articles in which the German presence in Philadelphia is there. Now, it's, it's a risky procedure in the sense that you can't take uh, what is written in the, in the newspapers at face value necessarily, 100% accurate, but you can't dismiss it either. Uh, a long time ago, uh, I discovered some very prominent historians uh, who say you cannot dismiss it either. So if you approach it with a grain of salt and you're saying, well, here's an editorial that shows how a mainstream Philadelphia newspaper was picking up the German presence at this time. This is what it is saying about the German, the role of German power in politics. If you qualify it a bit, uh, you can find a wealth of information in the newspapers, very rich information that uh, sometimes also gives you very graphic scenes. Uh, there's some, uh, there are a couple moments where I go into German households where a reporter 
claims to, and the, again, you have to uh, explain that this is what the reporter claimed to have witnessed, uh, an argument between a German mother and father over something involving the children on that particular occasion. And it's a very I interesting, informative, and perhaps amusing episode that takes place. But you have to be careful about how it, it is presented, because uh, you can uh, also fear or suspe suspect that the reporter may have embellished it a little bit, too. Uh, but at the same time, when you have the reporter sitting on a streetcar and he's describing the German operator of the streetcar, calling out the names of city streets with a strong German accent, uh, you can say to yourself, he's probably not at all exaggerating what he thinks he hears here. He's describing it exactly as he heard it, and it's exactly as it sounded to everyone else. Uh, that you can have a little more confidence in. Uh, but in any case, the newspapers are a very rich, very uh, abundant source of information uh, if used cautiously, uh, if used uh, with some uh, qualification. Uh, but uh, a, a very rich source. As you were reading through these newspaper articles, were, did you discover uh, stereotyped images of Germans? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, there are certain phrases that are used over and over and over again. Uh, for example, um, the depictions of the, the holiday celebrations, and the Germans are great. For example, Pentecost Sunday is a great uh, celebration for Germans. It's the, also usually the beginning of the picnic season, the beginning of spring and warmer weather. Uh, but the way in which the articles are phrased, uh, there's often um, adjectives used that describe uh, the, the, the German indulgence in beer, the issue, Phil, that you raised earlier. Uh, but at times as you read it, you say to yourself, uh, it seems a bit too much at moments. There's more going on here. And maybe you're all, but you're, what you're also getting is information on how other Philadelphians pictured uh, Germans. And that itself uh, can be a good finding. It may not be a fully accurate representation of what the Germans are actually uh, doing and uh, how they were actually behaving. But at the same time, it gives you some sense of how other Philadelphians were filtering that experience, were reconstructing that experience. And that becomes an important part of the context in which German life is being played out, because it's not just being played out in an objective world, but it's also being played out in a subjective world that is being constructed by other Philadelphians. Uh, and that's what I was trying to get at uh, with that uh, kind of uh, that kind of thing. But you do find you can uh, list a, a vocabulary, and I tried to do that somewhat in the book, a vocabulary of certain phrases and words that repeatedly uh, occur in the articles that describe the, the Sunday afternoon picnics. Now, one of the figures that you mention in the book is Godfrey Keebler. And yes. uh, he was a baker. And yes. He was, yes. Uh, people probably are very familiar with the yes. imagery that he used uh, from yes. German folklore. Yes, I, I look at the, uh, the Keebler products that we have in our own kitchen, and we have quite a few of them. And I look at the uh, uh, South German, uh, Tyrolean South German kind of rep uh, graphic representation of the elf-like figure that still serves as kind of a talisman for Keebler products. And I realize that 
Godfrey Keebler uh, invented or usurped this kind of uh, this kind of imagery, and it persists to this day. Um, along those lines, and before we end, um, I also got caught up with the uh, restaurant undertaking of Charles Reiser, Reiser uh, which I devoted quite a few pages to. And here was a, a really huge emporium, uh, a, a, a restaurant that was a huge meeting place. Uh, the, the, the bankers, the, the, the public officials, the, the government leaders, Walt Whitman, uh, among others, uh, a, 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 a really a, a coterie of very prominent Philadelphians routinely uh, ate at the research restaurant. And it's kind of sad because it was right smack in Center City and it's totally gone now. Not a trace, not a single trace that it ever existed. And yet at one time, it was a huge presence in Philadelphia and a very formidable, a very formidable meeting place uh, where I'm sure a lot of important activity took place, of political and economic activity took place. Uh, well, we've been speaking with Richard Giuliani. He is the author of Philadelphia's Germans from Colonial Settlers to Enemy Aliens. Rich, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you, Phil. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.